Welcome to the sixth episode of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. I'm really excited that I made it past five episodes. It's halfway to an actual number that matters. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I speak, write, and create artwork about sexual ethics in general, and polyamory and non-monogamy in particular. I wanted to then open this with a very exciting episode, but that's what's my last four episodes I've opened with. These are very special episodes, so I've just been, I guess, very lucky, but I'm still very lucky. Um, so we have a new co-host, and I'm very excited about that, and a uh, recurring co-host. We've been looking for someone for a while so that you're not just listening to me drone. <laughs> so uh, please join me in welcoming Sarah Lucas. Hi, I am uh, <laughs> I'm a little nervous about this. Uh, my name, uh, pseudonym for the show is Sarah Lucas. Um, I am a, a student at the local university, a sophomore. I am in the process of conducting a, um, a research project on consensual non-monogamy. And I met Mike at Atlanta Poly Weekend um, this year, and we connected, and we liked each other, and we're like, hey, let's do this. Well, actually, he was like, hey, I want to be a part of this, so... That's how that happened. All right, so let's talk about why you have to use a pseudonym. Some. Well, um, I live in a very conservative area, and I have a very conservative um, ex-monogamous husband, um, and I am afraid of losing custody of my child by revealing my polyamorous uh, affiliation and lifestyle choices. So I have decided for the participation of this show, show, it would be within my best interest for now to use a pseudonym. My hope is that in the future, people who are in custody battles such as my own do not have to use pseudonyms, do not have to hide their polyamorous lifestyle or their consensual non-monogamous lifestyle. That's actually one of the reasons why I decided to, to be a part of this podcast is to help bring greater understanding to the populace about the lifestyle that we live because it is significantly misconstrued and misunderstood. It's always fascinating to me how important what other people are doing in their private lives is to our culture. Agreed. I mean, I know I know it comes out of Puritan England, right? So a huge amount of our culture comes down from the Puritans, and that's why they ran away from England, because these are the people who, in the heyday of religion, were too religious for the other religious people. They were the, the yeah. kind of people that everyone else was like, man, you guys are bummers. Yeah, um, I never the, thought of it like that, but you are absolutely right. They were the the, the buzzkills. Well, and, and they basically almost literally had the rule, if it's enjoyable, it's bad. That you can tell us something is bad if it's enjoyable. Right, absolutely. Yep. I wonder what they would consider themselves the maybe religious refugees as opposed to missionaries at the time. I mean, granted, they did missionary work, of course, but yes. their goal wasn't primarily converting. It was escaping and creating a homestead. Yeah. Huh. Which, of course, also fascinating. Their goal was to get freedom from persecution so that they could turn around and persecute everyone else for the next 300 years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the irony. Let's talk a little bit more about your research, because that's something that I'm, always, I'm, I'm interested in. What, what kind of research is it that you're trying to do right now? I actually am interested in doing research on the children in consensual non-monogamous homes. My unofficial title for my research is Consensual Non-Monogamy and Child Rearing. Mm-hmm. In my research, I hope to include non-monogamous forms, basically anyone who is a self-proclaimed consensual non-monogamous, I would like to invite to be a part of my research. 
So that would include polyamorous people and swingers and potentially people who play with BDSM that are sexually involved with their playmates, I guess you could call them. I'm still in the very beginning stages of it. I've done preliminary research and literature review. And thus far, there are two names that keep popping up. One is Maria Payota Chiaroya. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her name. She is of Australia. She's a PhD in Australia. I believe her PhD is in psychology. The other name that keeps coming up is Dr. Elizabeth Sheff of Atlanta, Georgia, which is actually, it was my hope when I went to Atlanta for Atlanta Poly Weekend to run into her, but she was in San Francisco on those dates. They're, they've done some pretty thorough research, but more needs to be done because there needs to be more voices expressing these, these findings and this data about what is happening in these homes, how these children are being raised, what experiences, are, their experiences they are having, positive and negative, and how it affects them throughout their lives. Many people are very afraid that being sexually open to their children is a negative thing. And when I say sexually open, I obviously do not mean abuse. Abuse is abuse. Being open about what sex is, is not abuse. In my opinion, I I understand there are many people who are very religious, Christian, who have different opinions. I don't think that's limited to Christianity. Um, Good point. I mean, that's the that's what we run into the most because in America it can feel like Christianity's out to get you. But if we were in any number of other countries, it would feel the same way. Right, and we feel that Christ- Christianity is out to get us because of the the strict, chaste standards. I'm sure, like most many of our listeners, may not even feel that way. Essentially, my point is that there needs to be more research done by more people to help back up the validity of this data. Really, if you look at the, I don't know about the works from the Australian PhD that you were talking about, that Australian doctor, but Elizabeth Sheff's work, even by her you know, her own admission, it's, it's basically preliminary work. Uh, you know, right. Some of her writing is about how, well, actually, she appears as someone who was talked to in articles that I have read about how difficult doing sexual research on GSMs is. By the way, I, I normally say GSM for gender sexual minority instead of using the ever-increasing alphabet space, <laughs> partly because I want to cover everyone, partly because that's mostly where we fall anyway, and even right now, most of the time in the American version of the LT... L, 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 oh my god, I cannot LGBTQ, etc. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, they often don't include a P or, you know, um, anything for our, like, non-monogamous space, so I'm more comfortable saying GSMs, because I I think it's a more inclusive term, and it's one that I think can last, but we'll see what actually ends up happening with that. I like that. I think that's a very, an acronym that I think many can get behind. Yeah, and when I started using it, it was only, like, five things in the LGBTQ. (laughs) LGBTQ. There still is, technically. Yeah, well, yeah, and that (laughs) one. Well, right, but, uh, well, is it LGBTQ plus, or sometimes people say quilt bag, or... I saw when Canada was saying, some newscast recently, saying that the LGBTQ acronym included a P at the end. It was, like, 25 letters, and one of them was polyamory, (laughs) and that made me happy. Which is interesting because polyamory in Canada is still very much illegal. I can't remember what the law actually states, but <laughs> yeah, that, that's for sure true. Well, and you know, Canada has a long history of being anti-Mormon, so they oh, have yeah. a lot of laws that look like 
laws that would ban Mormons that uh, uh, unintentionally or intentionally also ban non-monogamy and polyamory. I apologize. I went on a tangent and I don't remember where we were. When you're talking about how much research has been done on That's right. non-monogamous households, right? that the research that has been done at best counts as what would be called a preliminary like a preliminary study or an indicator that further research should be done. Like if I was reading most of that work anywhere other than in the polyamorous space, I would read at the end, this indicates that we should do follow-up research. And that's because, as Elizabeth Sheff has said, and so like I said, there's articles of people interviewing her about why it's so difficult, that because uh, we count as GSMs, IRB review boards, or ER, <laughs> ethics review boards, why did I say IRB? Institutional... Research. Oh. It's oh, an institutional right. I, review board is what it stands for. I actually got it right. Yes. Oh, I did get it right. In my head, I got it wrong. All right, yeah. So IRBs are reticent to grant the opportunity for people to do that research. And even if they do, it takes three to four to five times as long to get it. You have to go through a lot of hoops to get it. You have to get triple signed off on. You have to walk through the bureaucracy for months at a time in order to get this done, which eventually means most people are not even willing to do the research because it sets their career back four or five, six years yes. to uh, do the research. And then what you see is when people do do the research, they end up doing what Elizabeth Sheff has done, which is they publicize the research, not really in the academic sphere, although I know she sort of does that, but mostly in the private sphere to be able to fund the work because it's so difficult to get tenure and get a teaching position teaching in this area. Right. And she's also um, cited in some of her published works that she's struggled to find academic journals that will accept her research as valid. And granted, her research started in the 90s. Um, she's now on her fourth wave, and she's been doing waves approximately every five years of her ethnographic longitudinal study. So, I mean, times have changed. There's a lot more acceptance of the lifestyle, even though we are worlds away from being actually accepted in on a larger um, na national scale. Yeah, it's so interesting, too, because, you know, I'm reading articles all the time about what the actual percentages of polyamorous people are, especially in or non-monogamous people, either one, especially in young groups. Yes, uh, the hookup culture. <laughs> hookup culture. Well, and hookup culture is questionable because is hookup culture non-monogamy or is it extreme high-rotation serial monogamy? <laughs> say that say that phrase one more time let's just appreciate that <laughs> yeah i i completely understand what you're saying that i kind of agree with that it could just be a a more um loose and um, high rollover i guess you could say a version of a serial non-monogamy more than it could be a true consensual non-monogamy because the monogamous mindset uh, normative monogamous and that mindset is so deep within our culture. What's fascinating is it's actually harder to get like a hookup style date if you list yourself as poly than or you know, polyamorous than it does if you don't. And actually even harder than if you list yourself as married most of the time. Right? That Interesting. Huh. Like cheating. Like there are cheating websites that are pretty successful, but it's very you know, much more difficult to sort of even for like a very short scale thing list yeah. yourself that way. The implications of listing yourself as married and cheating um, being more accepted is fascinating. And that comes to, I, you spoke about statistics on non-monogamy and the statistics of those who have participated in some form of non-monogamy, which is, is staggering mm. compared to what society thinks. I mean, cheating, if 
can be viewed as an epidemic, if you will. Mm-hmm. Sort of a personal aside, one of the people that my primary partner was dating early on thought that I did not know. Oh. And when she found out that I did know, she broke up with my partner because, quote, that's just too weird. Yeah, it's like there's something about they can't, <laughs> those who are very monogamous and it's ingrained in them, they can't wrap their mind around choosing to be non-monogamous. I've run into the same thing when I've introduced myself. It's like, why are you choosing to be that way? It's like you're embracing mm-hmm. this cheating mentality. And they, some people really have a hard time wrapping their mind around the idea that it's not really cheating if everybody knows I'm not hurting anyone. Yeah, that robust consent, it's weird when people hear that and go, I, I still think that it's probably cheating. Yes, I get that a lot myself. I mean, I don't talk super openly about polys to everyone, um, again, because of my custody situation. Right. But when right. I do, it's it's uh, like that phrase you just said that I forgot. Well, I would, I would like, I'd like to, to change it a little bit anyway. I'd like to say ultra-rapid cycling serial monogamy. That was not <laughs> that was not the phrase I was thinking of, but yes, I, oh, I that love one. that. Let's come up with more phrases like that to describe things. <laughs> Sorry, which one was you looking for? What, what was the t- the context of? I I don't for? know. Sometimes I have the memory of the goldfish. I can't remember. All right, this is fine. <laughs> we'll move on from that one then. I, I mean, I guess my my big takeaway there is there has to be an actual body of research before people are going to believe us. So that it can't be one person or two people. It has to be an entire research field so i am very glad that you're doing that research and fielding all that headache not (laughs) quite a headache yet i'm I'm looking forward to the headache because i think it will be fun to i love going against the grain like i love people who go against the grain too which is a part of what makes me want to just like research it because i think it is so fascinating how social norms define who we are yet we're the ones who make them like the, it's this cycle and I think that's terribly fascinating so yeah for sure and then how people interpret social norms as actual reality yeah like not even as a social norm but like this is just a rule of being a human and you're like that seems wrong <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> yeah all right cool so I think this is a good time to transition over to today's main topic autonomy is not a cudgel This is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart because every single day I go on Facebook and I see people posting these very long debates where they're, you know, oh my God, we've lost our right to autonomy. We've lost our right to free speech. Nobody has free speech anymore. And it's a complete misunderstanding of what any of those philosophical constructs are supposed to operate on and are justified under. I think I've said this before, but if not, most of the major structural concepts that we embrace as ethics or morals or societal guidelines were either at some point science or philosophy concepts that got sort of vetted and then disseminated and then came up with a common sense understanding. And usually that works fine, but sometimes that common sense understanding is harmful in some way. And I think that happens a lot specifically around sort of what they call the rights discourse. So the rights discourse is any discussion of anything where you could say, I have a right to X. So autonomy is part of the rights discourse. And in many cases, autonomy is seen as the right, which is the reason I chose it as the actual name for this section. 
because the idea is that all other part of your rights come stem from your right to autonomy. So if you have a right to free speech, it's because you should be autonomous and we shouldn't be telling you what you should talk about. Um, if you have a right to, an edu you know, to, to be able to pursue an education, then it's because you have the right to be able to do what you want, right? And so if you have the right to equality and if you have the right to not be discriminated against, if you have you know, the right to a firearm, any kind of right you want to talk about has to be based on autonomy because that's why you're supposed to have it. But what happens is that rights discourse talks about your relationship to what I'm going to call legislative force or um, so in many theoretical structures a government is just whichever organization in the area owns the monopoly on using force in any space there's always some organization and that organization usually calls itself a government which is the only organization that's allowed to use force i.e attack shoot punch arrest whatever words you want to use for it no matter how you want to dress it up in that area and anyone else who uses force is seen as illegitimate force right so when a police officer guns someone down that's an action of the state when someone who's not a police officer guns someone's down that's murder right but the only important distinction there is the police officer works for the organization which owns the legal rights the monopoly on violence in that space or the government Rights become really important if you're going to create a government and give them the unique right to enforce their goals with, with violence. <laughs> so if you create a governmental body and then you say, okay, well, your job is to tell me when I've done things wrong, and if I've done them really wrong, your job is actually to roll up and kill me, uh, arrest me, detain me, whatever. Then it becomes really important to have some guidelines about when they're not allowed to do those things, which is you know the reason why in the original sort of Articles of Federation for a confederation, sorry, for uh, the United States, they pushed back with the Bill of Rights, right? And they said, well, we want some guarantees that you won't take important things from us. Those rights are only between individuals and their government, not between individuals. In most of the theory around these rights, the idea is that social censure, or basically censure between individuals, is actually the check on that right. So free speech is fine, but if you say horrible, horrible things, your neighbors also have a right to autonomy and they can use that right to walk away from you, to not talk to you, to not listen to what you're saying, to not want to be involved in that conversation, to tell you you're a horrible person using their own freedom of speech. And that's not a violation of freedom of speech. So whenever anyone says like, you know what, I know it's not popular, but I like name some really unliked person here and everyone goes, you know, shoots them down or cancels their rock concert or whatever. And everyone goes, there's no free speech left in the world. None of those things were the government. The government did not show up and drag you off to a camp. The government did not show up and arrest you. That's, that's actually exactly how free speech is supposed to work. It's supposed to create a marketplace of ideas, which we then vote on based on how much we like those ideas. And we vote on it by approving or disapproving socially. So when you think you have the unlimited right to say whatever you want, no matter how poisonous or grotesque or painful or hurtful to other people, and they have to just let you finish because you have a freedom of speech, that's ridiculous, right? And the easiest way to see why that's ridiculous is because freedom of speech is based on autonomy. And the key to understanding autonomy is your autonomy always ends where someone else's autonomy begins. If you have the right to free speech, I must have the right to walk away. If you have the right to say whatever you want, I must have the right not to listen. 
you know, I also have the right to be offended, to not want to talk to you anymore, to cut you off socially. And if you say I don't have those, then you're undercutting the autonomy element of free speech to begin with. So to get off of free speech and back to autonomy, what I see people doing in relationships with all forms of rights, but specifically autonomy and free speech, is trying to use them to justify what I would call morally problematic behaviors. Right? So I use a chart that doesn't just have immoral and moral. It also has when the, the standard the standard structure for morality actually has not just immoral and moral, but morally permissible, morally mandatory, and morally impermissible. Which means morally permissible is you're allowed to do it, but it's not really required. Morally mandatory is you must do it. And morally impermissible is you must not do it. Right? So it's morally impermissible to kill someone. But it is morally required that you save a drowning child if you could do so at reasonably low cost. And it is morally permissible to, I guess, use your right to free speech in public somewhere in a really unpleasant way. But <laughs> it's not obviously morally required. So I add two additional categories. Morally laudable and morally reproachful. So morally laudable is something that you would see as being good uh, or morally better, but not necessarily being required, right? So people who give lots of money to charity are not just morally permissible, obviously it's more than that, but it's not morally mandatory to give money to charity, right? So it has to have something in between that, and that's where I put morally laudable. So people will do a thing in non-monogamy where they will describe themselves as being fiercely autonomous and fiercely defending of their autonomy, and they will use that and their belief that they have a right and then not the belief, the right, the, their understanding of their right to autonomy to shame people that don't have the same emotional structure that they have. So say you are a highly autonomous relationship anarchist and you're dating somebody who's sort of new to this whole scene and they, they think that open relationships make sense ethically, but that, you know, they're, they're really working through those issues you haven't really discussed what the system is for going outside of your current dyadic relationship, but they know that you're a relationship anarchist, whatever that means to them, and you go off and you just simply sleep with someone and then come back and say, hey, I slept with somebody. You didn't talk to them about it first or do any of the rest of it, and they have a very strong emotional reaction. And you say, that's not fair, I have a right to autonomy. Okay, well, they can't tell you you can't do that, but it's certainly fair for them to have their own emotional response. You cannot tell them that they don't have the right to have a difficult emotional response or even to decide they no longer want to be with you in that context. And I see a lot of autonomy being used that way, and I see a lot of freedom of speech being used that way, where people start talking to their partner about some really difficult things for them, and the partner says, I'm not ready to hear this. And they're like, well, I have free speech, so you're going to listen. And you're like, that's not, that's not right. That's bullying. And so if you're going to expect their autonomy, you cannot use these things that way. And just generally... In addition to the fact that these are between governments and people, these rights not between people and people, there's no real need for them when you can simplify relationships down to consent. If the person you're trying to talk to is not consenting for you to talk to them, you're violating their consent. I don't care about the rest of the rights, you violated their consent, and that is bad in and of itself. It's an ethical lapse of some variety, right? So, Or if you are dating someone and you know that something will hurt them, and you haven't done everything you could to stop it from hurting them, and you haven't given them the chance to choose to stop dating you before you do the thing that hurts them, and you do it anyway because you have the autonomy to do so, that's an ethical lapse. 
you're now you are allowed to do it. You have autonomy, but don't act like they're not allowed to be upset about that. Don't act like you didn't do anything wrong. You had a reasonably foreseeable perspective that they were going to be hurt. Then you did something wrong. Now, if you genuinely didn't think they'd be upset, and you do it, then you both can talk about that, right? But when you do, don't tell them you don't have the right to be upset. I'm my own person. We agreed to relationship anarchy, etc. They have the right to be those things. It just may not mean that you two are compatible, which is a different issue. Okay. All right. I just want to kind of keep listening to you. Like that was excellent information. Let's see. Where do I start with my response? I love the way that you have explained what autonomy is in terms of how institutionalization of our society um, plays a role in that. When it comes to relationships, thinking back on what you said about the institutionalized, like like with the, the police officer, if he shoots someone down, it is an act of justice. If I were to shoot someone down, it would be an act of murder. It's almost like in these situations with these romantic relationships when someone says this is my autonomy um, I have the right to do this and relationship anarchists and such um, that they are using the almost the institution of if if you will um, of autonomy to defend themselves in a way they feel is just Um, I've actually seen some people who claim themselves to be fiercely autonomous and I question when I see them are you really understanding what is happening on the flip side of this are you understanding how this is being received in your relationship are you considering their feelings as much as you say you are and are are you really looking deeper into the ethics of what you're doing I also love that you simplified you mentioned simplifying it down to consent and when your where your autonomy ends someone else begins that it's like it's like bubbles i mean you can't break somebody else's bubble and still expect them to feel like they've got their autonomy you have to in in my opinion for a relationship a romantic relationship or any relationship to be successful and interpersonal i'm i'm sorry interdependent you would have to really understand that trying to force your autonomy with a claim my autonomy is mine this is something that I am allowed to do because of my autonomy that you are having an ethical lapse and pushing your bubble into theirs rather than having two bubbles that meet together and float together beautifully so going back to the idea of an ethical lapse you mentioned a chart that you've made that you talked about morally laudable and morally reproachful and the other categories you had. Um, can you expand on that a little more? And I, I guess what I, what I mean by more is maybe just, uh, well, you said it a little quickly. Could you um, say it just a little slower and give us some more like examples of what would fit in each category so that we have a better understanding of how we could apply this kind of a chart and these ideas into our lives. Yeah. And hey, if you've got a chart for this, I we could probably if you if you've got like a an electronic version of this chart, we could probably post it with the podcast on Facebook. 
I, uh, I think you make a, a, a lot of good points there, and I'd like to, to address some of them. I think actually it's really fascinating, you know, what I love to see finally is people noticing and questioning if police shooting people is actually just automatically justice. We have right. people actually going, wait, is that justice? And, and I, ho- I hope that you can sort of put that cynicism onto these other institutions. I mean, one of the things that humans are amazing at doing and I would actually say the thing that most quintessentially makes us human is creating categories and quickly shoving new things we experience into one of those categories, right? And then using the idea of that category to navigate our world. So when I see a light switch, I don't wonder if it's going to, like, eject me from the house Bugs Bunny style. I mean, it could, right? It turns on any power device in the house. It might not even be connected to anything. I assume it's a light switch because it looks like a light switch. And but the sometimes it's not a light switch, I'm usually surprised. Like I flip it and the disposal jumps on and I, and I freak out and turn it back off, right? But I actually just assume it's going to be a light switch, which works really well for navigating your world. And then humans have a system for exempting people from categories for those people who are closest to us. We make so many exceptions. You know, the, the line, love is exception making. And I don't think people realize how insidious that line is because that's that's cute and that's great. But it doesn't work so well when it means that not loving people means making no exceptions, including the ones that people need. Agreed. And I also like the way you, you rephrase that as sort of using the institution of autonomy to defend themselves. because That's the same thing. You're creating a category of autonomous actions. And any action that you feel fits in the autonomous category is automatically exempt from any need to examine it. Right. Um, which, which is the value of those categories, right? Um, the value of those categories is that they function as heuristics. So uh, if you're not familiar with heuristics, it means quick decision-making tests, sort of if this, then that kind of tests, right? And the human brain loves to generate heuristics because it's just less effort. And if there's one thing that's true about humans, it's that we always, you know, genetically, physically, mentally, go for less effort. It's the reason why the very moment that your muscles finish fixing themselves after the gym, they start breaking back down. <laughs> your body doesn't want to spend any energy on anything it doesn't have to do um, because that's more hunting you have to do. It's more food you have to find. And mental effort is a lot. Your brain uses 40% of the protein you eat. Hmm. Um, and actually making decisions degrades the amount of, it burns up what we call brain glucose, which is glucose stored in your brain the same way that your muscles still store glucose before like a big run. Hmm. So uh, you actually make better decisions and more ethical decisions if you're drinking like a sweet drink, like a soda or um, tea. Really? Because it powers your brain through those decisions. So you can make a few decisions without what we call uh, decision fatigue. But then after you get to decision fatigue, your brain's burned up all its glucose making these tough decisions. Do you have... And if you're not replacing it. Do you have like a link or something to studies that back that claim? I'd really be yeah. interested in learning more. Yeah, I can go find those for you. And when I find them, I can also post them on the, the Facebook for anyone else that's, that's interested in them. Although they may be behind like paywalls. I may have to go through JSTOR to find them or, or some uh, other yeah. um, books that I have. But I, I will do my best okay. um, awesome. to, to share with you what I can on that. Okay. And so, so it makes sense that you want to do that. So I'm not saying you're a bad person for wanting to do that. Because it's, you know, if you listen to me enough, you know I don't, I don't, believe in, I don't actually believe in the word. My, my, my master's thesis was that we should stop using words like good and evil period in our culture. Say that again. Right. That <laughs> my, my master's thesis was that we should not use what I call valued language, which is any language that includes in it a built-in value judgment. 
Oh, yes, you mentioned that in a previous podcast. Right, saying something is evil, saying something is good, is not helpful to anyone, and it disguises the actual content of the message. Right. Right, so when someone says, I have the right to autonomy, and you have no right to be upset, you are basically bad or violating or whatever, those words have those valences, right? So violating has a moral content when you say it, right? And so... I guess that's actually not right. So I didn't say you shouldn't use those words. They're great for day-to-day discussion. They're great for giving impassioned speeches. They're not, my, my actual thesis was that you shouldn't use them for policy decisions, right? So when you're making decisions about how people should run their lives or how you should run your life, sort of a deep, thoughtful decision, you don't want to use those words unless you don't have, unless you have a limited amount of time. And I think that's going to be true sort of in these scenarios as well. So if you want to say something like, well, I have autonomy, so I have the right to go out and do whatever I want, why not actually just have that conversation? You know, ask the other person what it's costing them, ask why they think that it's a problem, ask what they're willing to do, you know, because, and, and this was really fantastic, the way you, you moved that over to the, the idea of one bubble pushing into another and the idea of, of working together being versus separate. It's always really weird to me when people say, I want to be super autonomous and have tons of relationships. Yeah, those seem, those seem <laughs> like, an, like an oxymoron. That seems like an oxymoron, like... Nobody has the right to sleep right. with somebody else. And it, that's a confusing, and I understand why that's confusing, because we know that humans, most humans, I and mean, there are exceptions, right? So uh, um, asexuals, for instance, most humans need sex to be happy and to live their sort of best life. And yet we're going to tell you that you actually don't have the right to sex. There's no way to give you the right to sex, because how would we do that without violating someone else's autonomy? And I think you're going to run into the same question, right? So if you are going to say to me, I have my autonomy, so I have the right to tell people um, I don't do relationships or whatever. I don't, I don't want to, I keep saying the same one. I don't want to pick out one group as like a villain. Like I don't think relationship anarchists are villains. Sure. I don't think, well, and, and of course that happens in polyamory too. I'm polyamorous. I told them I was polyamorous. I told them my rules for polyamory, you know, mm-hmm. but I think as an ethical person, there's always what I would call the due diligence. Right, if you're trying to be sort of your best ethical self, uh, this would be true for just you know, basic culpability you know, in any sort of legal sense or business sense. If you start doing a venture and you never investigate, for example, if any of your employees, uh, uh, you don't investigate any of your employees' references at a daycare, and it turns out someone was fired for like abusing children, you'll be culpable for that because you didn't do your due diligence. You can get sued for that, arrested for that. You know, you're responsible for having checked those things. So I think when you are polyamorous and you start dating someone who is new to polyamory and you just tell them, it means I get to do what I want, and then you go off and do what you want, and they say yes, they say, okay, okay, mm-hmm. and you go off and do what you want, and they come back and they're crying, they didn't expect you to do that. Right. Right. And you could have done more to, to bring them up to speed on that, right? I mean, the, the, the sense is that you should do everything that you could think of to do to bring them up to speed or just not date them. Cause that's the flip side of that is that's the problem with my, my autonomous claim there is for me is that you could just not date people. If you want to be super autonomous, like if you want to be the most autonomous person ever, just don't date people. Right. Like you're already <laughs> giving up some autonomy. If you're going to date somebody in some way and you become not ethically responsible for their happiness, but it's definitely, you know, morally reproachful if you don't care about their happiness and becomes morally laudable to care about their happiness. And so if you exist in a space where you refuse to do either of those things, but continue to engage in relationships, 
I do think you end up in moral lapse, and I think that's not a great place to be. And I don't think you even realize, I mean, I, I never think people are doing wrong things on purpose. I don't think, or I shouldn't say wrong, harmful things to on purpose. I guess, you know what, let me go ahead and add the terms that I have so often relied on, which is pro-social and its friend in that context, antisocial. So when I say pro-social, I'm using a psychological definition, which we divorced from moral questions to mean taking actions with the goal of helping other people, right? So you're pro-social when you take an action that helps others. So if you give money to somebody to help them through a hard time, that's a pro-social action, right? And then an anti-social action or a social action is an action that focuses on yourself or, well, in, in, sorry, respectively, harms other people or focuses on yourself. So those are sort of the, the three terms that I would generally be more comfortable using because I don't think that someone who's trying to be super autonomous is necessarily harmful or bad, but I, I do think they are not being pro-social. I think they're, they're being a, a form of best asocial and probably unintentionally antisocial. And it probably comes from, very ironically, that person experiencing an over-attachment to other people's emotions and using the label of autonomy to divorce them from feeling bad about it. So if you're thinking about people that come out of sort of a Puritan background where we say, like, if you make someone feel bad, you're a bad person. Yeah. Well, how do you even start dating multiple people when that's going to cause people to feel bad? Right. You create a category that says, as long as it's in this category, this my autonomy category, I can do no wrong. And that allows you to divorce yourself from feeling the pain of that other person right. when you cause it or feeling responsible for it. And so ironically, I think a lot of the people that do this, people who actually probably care the most at some point and use, and in a sense, therefore are hiding from it. Right. In a weird way, you know, I am highly utilitarian by all metrics in, in my thinking. And there are weird and crazy brain scans that show that utilitarians have brains that in most cases function like sociopaths huh. rather than normal people because a sociopath judges an action based on its logical outcomes as does an ethicist. Hmm. So I'm concerned with if your action will harm people or not, if your action's pro-social or anti-social. And so I try not to respond at the emotional level, but to actually analyze the outcomes and your goals and where you're coming from and your situatedness to figure out what you're doing, which would mean that if you gave me a difficult moral question and did a brain scan, you'd see all the logical centers of my brain light up and very few of the emotional centers, mm. uh, which is the same thing you'll see in a sociopath, <laughs> um, but not a normal person for whom both will light up and usually more emotional even than, than the sort of logical centers of the brain. And so I think you're dealing with people who have a very strong emotional response to the people's pain and they're tr looking for a way to feel good about the actions they're taking and still actually be able to retain enough autonomy to be a real person. Hmm. And so I think that's something that they need to be able to do, but I do think you can do that without hiding behind autonomy as a catch-all. Anytime you simplify things, you start getting things wrong, you start hurting people. You know, there's a, there's a line that comes, that, I've, that comes up often in feminist and minority feminist discourse right now, which is, let's keep things complex or let's complicate this, hmm. where they just keep adding layers to the problem, which is sort of coherent with the idea of the intersectionality approach to ethics, which is that as soon as you start removing things, you no longer have the real problem. What you have is an abstraction. Okay, yeah. And an abstraction isn't the problem and you cannot solve an abstraction. Right. 
Okay, yeah, I, I like the, the let's complicate things and instead of simplifying them. You're right. When we simplify it, we make it a little less human because we are very complex creatures and we are, we are very emotional and very logical. And so it, it makes sense to try to... It makes sense that we would try to simplify things because, like you said earlier, we want an easier route as, as just being human. We want the easiest way out. But allowing us to complicate things and to kind of lean into the pain just a little bit to understand what other people are thinking allows us to gain a, well, I guess gain a better understanding, of course, um, but to connect with those people in a way that we wouldn't be able to if we were to just simplify it and allows you to, to have more of, I, I used this term earlier, an, an interdependence instead of an independence or a very autonomous relationship. No, I, I think that's exactly right, and I think that's what you would, what would hopefully would would want. I mean, that's what you get out of being with someone, right? right? I mean, it, there's there's got to be some level of interconnecting that you're interested in. Otherwise, you know, why are you not just using sex toys or you know, living outside of Vegas where you can purchase sex workers, whatever works for you, you know? Precisely, yeah. There's some connection you're trying to have, and then I introduced this term earlier, but it's a what I call you know, a protest gesture, which is what people do when they're in pain, mm-hmm. right? and Protest gestures are very hard for us to deal with. If you've ever heard a baby cry, it's very difficult not to try and comfort them. Yes. And especially if you care about that baby. It's your baby. Mm -hmm. You mean you will jump over a burning fire to comfort that child, even if even if they did the wrong thing. Yeah. Like even if they're the one that did it, you're like, oh my god, gotta fix this. (laughs) Yep. And so it's natural to think that if you're a person that's a frayed nerve like that, walking around in the world you'd want to create a protection. Mm-hmm. And using autonomy is a culturally acceptable protection. But then the thing is, before you probably were overreacting to things you weren't responsible for, but now you're underreacting to things you are responsible for. And you are causing all of those harms that everybody always said you were wrongly. Right? So you've become the thing that you never were, but everyone said you were. And I think that you would find if you analyze that, that's not where you want to be. Right. And so, to summarize, you just don't need it in relationships. In relationships, everything ought to be about consent. And, you know, obviously my perspective is it ought to be about this robust notion of consent, which I literally did an entire podcast that only answers the question, what do I mean when I say robust notion of consent? Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to get into that. This is like episode two. Go listen to it. I'm trying to do these in the order that you'll need the grounding. So if you're listening out of order and you really like what I'm saying, if you go back, it might answer the questions that you have. About about this one. Not that you have to go listen to all of them. But, um, interviews aside, <laughs> like interviews too, but... <laughs> we would like you to. That yes. would be great. But the short version basically is that for consent to really be true consent, it has to be non-coercive, yes. uh, which means you have to do everything you can to remove coercion from it. Right. Which is actually, as it turns out, an incredibly complex. Yes, I found the same thing. It's it's really hard to right. give true, meaningful consent that doesn't that is truly not coercive. It's, it's a difficult thing. You think it's so easy, but no, when you're in the moment, it's, it's actually hard. It's very hard. I've also said multiple times, but I will say probably this a lot, the goal of ethics is not to be perfect. Mm-hmm. That would be like saying the goal of you know, Christianity is to be Jesus. Right. It's not. You know that you're flawed. You know that you can't make it. The goal is to be better than you were yesterday and to harm people less than you did before and to live a better life each day. Right. So any even small improvement is good. And we're always looking just for sort of the best you can realistically do. Mm-hmm. And that even includes things like speed of growth and even just mental burden. Like I said, you burn out making decisions. So after you've made five or six hard decisions, if you make a bad decision, don't beat yourself up. Just be like, ooh, 
I'll try harder next time. Right. Or get a sweet tea. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Either works. <laughs> yeah. Or wait. Right. If you feel yourself making bad decisions, as you've if you've made a lot of decisions and you feel yourself making angry decisions, tell your partner, "We need to come back to this. I need to sleep. I need to rest. I need to refresh. Let's come back when I can. I can do this more constructively." But if you are violating someone's consent, then you are no longer in the realm of autonomy. And since you are operating inside of relationships, I don't know why you would ever, ever need to appeal to autonomy. Okay. Because you can appeal to your consent, right? I didn't consent to be with only you. Mm-hmm. But that also starts a conversation instead of ending it. Instead of saying, I have my autonomy, you have no right here. Mm-hmm. You say, well, we talked about this. I consented to be with you if you understood that I was also going to be able to be with other people. And then I even specified that I wasn't going to tell you in advance or ask you in advance because that's not how I what I am able to offer you. Mm-hmm. And I like being with you. I hope that you'll still want to be with me. But if you find that you can't deal with that, then, you know, obviously we can we can try and restructure our relationship. We can break up. We can switch to a different structure like a friendship. You know, we can sort of use the fluidity that I, I find in poly relationships so appealing. Right. Where we can sort of transition to friendship and try friendship with the idea that maybe we'll go back to being romantically involved after you've been with me as a friend and experienced me dating all these other people. Mm-hmm. And if that you're comfortable with that later and once you understand more, we can go back. But it starts the conversation. Why does, why why are you scared of this in the first place? Why are you hurt by this? What can we do right. to fix that? Right. Instead of putting a hold on the conversation with just, you're a bad person, you were violating my autonomy, I am right, you are wrong, don't ever bring this up again, which becomes super coercive. Right. It forces people into the box so they have to accept your argument. Right. And it's ultimatum-like, too. And I think we could, I am sure you and I can agree on the idea that ultimatums are a really almost disturbing way to, to have romantic relationships if you're the kind of person who makes regular ultimatums. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to complicate that a tiny okay. bit because I am not great with people giving me ultimatums for sure. But depending on sort of the type of relationship you want, boundaries may sound like ultimatums. True. Good point. So your boundary being, I need a relationship where there are no strictures put on who I'm allowed to sleep with or I can't be in that relationship isn't an ultimatum. It's a boundary. Exactly. It's what you need to be healthy. Right. Um, but it sounds a lot like an ultimatum if I'm dating you. Like, if I'm dating you and you're like, well, I need this or we're not dating, that's just that's just threatening to break up with me is what it sounds like. Right. Right. And, of course, part of the difference is introductions, right? Did you tell people that up front or did you throw that at them after they were attached to you? Right. I also feel <laughs> a, a big difference between boundaries and ultimatums is the, the threat aspect. If you are intending to threat uh, threaten someone with your boundary, then it can essentially become an ultimatum. I feel like we've totally gone on the tangent of ultimatums, and I, uh, oops. I think this is good. I think I think ultimatums are on topic because... Oh, yeah, because they are, in a sense, a part of the the autonomous life uh, institution of using it. Autonomy often ends up actually functioning as an unlimited number of ultimatums. Yes. Yeah. Right? And built in with a, and this is the cudgel part, built in with a a, a heavy dose of you are just a bad person if you don't agree with my ultimatum. So not only is it an ultimatum, but you're actually, in, they're, they're claiming that you are a moral, you're failing morally, you're failing justice, you're failing ethically if you don't go along with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So in addition to risking, risking breaking up with me, you're just, a ter- I mean, you're just a terrible person. Right, yeah. No, so I think it's, I think it's right on topic, and I think that's, that's actually really my concern, is that people end up making 
I mean, it sounds like all the demands, because I mean, obviously, in the end, there are different senses of what choice means. But in the, in one of them, there are there are people who argue that you have a choice unless you're physically restrained from acting. Mm-hmm. So that even the people who went to concentration camps had a choice, they could have been shot in the face running away. Right, but... Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Not a great choice. That's not an ethical True. choice. But, but what I was going to say, so you still theoretically have the choice to choose to not go along with the sort of, you violated my autonomy, you're a bad person if you don't do what I want. But it, it almost even is a step beyond ultimatum to control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Right, it's, co- exactly. it's coercion. I was just about to it's, say you that. Know, pass automated into con- con- coercion, which is, is sort of a terrifying place to be, and I don't think a place anybody intentionally wants to get with people that they love. I might challenge that, but I guess, it, it, no, not with people that they actually love, with people that, the yes, having been in an abusive situation, I understand being coerced into many, many different aspects of my life, and um, the claim was that I was being loved, but in retrospect, was it really love? I'll, I'll push back on that a, a tiny bit, I, and obviously not to invalidate any of the things that you said. People, I don't think, are capable of acting outside of what they think is right action. Touche. That person, I would say, is a is antisocial, and I would say they are harmful in the way that they express their experience of love. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily think that that's not their best version of their experience of love. Yeah, um, that's a good point, and that could very well be the case. Uh, but of course, there are also people who are literally just trying to control people. They never love that person. Right. They just said they love that person, and they just want like a slave or a live-at-home servant or whatever, and they right. they use the cultural conventions to get that control. And I've seen that, too. I haven't personally experienced that, but I've seen that, people who intentionally hurt others to get their way knowing that they're hurting them because they want a specific outcome and for some reason that's the way they want they want to do it and they feel is the best way i guess i'm not positive on all the reasons no, i mean that that's very rare though true sociopaths are very very rare it's like one percent of the population much more common is something like the person is controlling you and in their own head they think well this is actually what's best for that person yes. i love them and this is helping them keep their life together and if i told them the truth they would do the wrong thing and their life would fall apart and they would hate themselves and this will actually be better for them and their children and their experience and you know yeah which kind of comes back to the topic of, of autonomy and the, the fierce autonomy uh, it does the fiercely autonomous individuals, like they are doing what they feel is best for them, for their lives, for those who are around them in order to be the happiest that they could possibly be, which I think is the ultimate goal of most humans, most individuals is to be, live the happiest lives they possibly can. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. Uh, And I mean, you know, I, I get the urge, my, I think the turning point for me in having good relationships from bad relationships is I came out of a really bad relationship where I made a lot of promises that the person asked me to make, and then fulfilling those promises was right. very toxic yeah. to both of us. And so I ended up saying to my, my new partner very early on, I said, the only thing I'm going to promise you is that I'll never promise you anything. And that was the best relationship I've ever had. It's actually the partner who I'm still married to, have children with, etc. That's interesting. <laughs> there's there's a, a, this sense of freedom that you gave to yourself and to, um, I, I think I know whom... Uh, you're speaking of a you do. wife yeah. that freedom I was once told is the real goal in a relationship a romantic relationship to be able to have that I guess you euphoria maybe uh, anyway the 
the connection to someone else that is, I guess, rooted in your heart, that allows you the freedom to be autonomous without, um, without them coming into your space and without you going into their space. So I, I love that that worked for you. Just saying, you know what, like this is this is something I can't I can't do because it's I'm human and I give you the freedom to accept that or not. But I'm establishing my own freedom in this without saying that I don't want to be with you or I want to hurt you. Yeah, no, and I think that. That perfectly sums up my perspective on all of this, which is, I get where you're going. It's great. But if you're actually coercing people by sort of overreaching in that direction, by simplifying, Mm -hmm. by making it a heuristic, by having an automatic go-to, then you are the very thing you were accused of being. And instead, let's look at, you know, understanding your partners, let's look at consent, and let's uh, avoid trying to bring rights discourse, which is a government-scale discourse, down to individual human interaction. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. I think yeah. we are going to be out of time. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Sarah, so much for becoming part of our team and being the other element of this that we so desperately needed. It is a pleasure. I am excited to be a part of this venture. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of it. All right. So, um, okay, just a couple of things before we go. Um, again, the big push we're trying to get is interaction now. So please leave your comments. Meantime, yes. I am going to apparently make a chart to better explain the sort of um, ethical five points. I didn't get to do that this time, and maybe we'll touch on that at the beginning of next episode. What we are going to affectionately call Michael's chart of morality and ethics awesomeness. (laughs) Until uh, (laughs) until we come up with another title, or we've determined that that is the most appropriate title. I'm also going to look for those sources for uh, studies on brain controls and (laughs) decision making. And I'm going to try and post those periodically throughout the week, so you know, check back. If you guys don't know, Facebook does not ever tell you when we post stuff. You have to check back on your own. You have to take responsibility so you can take responsibility for yourself. Come back every couple of weeks. Come back every week. Uh, subscribe to the good. SoundCloud. We're trying to get on <laughs> iTunes. Um, but, but try and keep up with us because yes. we do this for you and we need you there for it to work. Yes, we would love to have you there. All right. Have a great night. <laughs>